We are in the book of Exodus, as Josh mentioned. We're working our way through. We're into chapter 13 this morning. Um, I've always found military service a strange thing, an intriguing thing. Um, I, I would have been somewhat drawn to the military, uh, if not to ministry, but it's not like ordinary jobs. There are aspects to it that are similar to your average job, and it's not all time in action, but there's one significant difference. When you join the military, um, you're theirs. You belong to them. They tell you how to cut your hair. They tell you where you're going to live, what job you're going to do. Um, they have the right to ship you over to another country and, and put you in a war zone. Um, you give up, at least to some extent, your personal autonomy when you sign on that dotted line. And uh, that tends to make us pretty uncomfortable. We like to be our own person. We like to make our own decisions. Um, and yet, in a much more invasive way and much more extensive way. As God makes this covenant with Abraham and he works it out faithfully through Isaac and Jacob blessing their family, even through slavery in Egypt and now rescuing them out of Egypt by these mighty acts of judgment, God is declaring, Israel is mine. They are my people. They belong to me. The last eight weeks, we've talked about what it means that God is our rescuer, our great Savior, and what an amazing thing that is. Um, the Lord who saves. We, we cannot lose sight of that. We will not lose sight of that. But today, as we move into chapter 13, we see the Lord beginning to reveal what does it mean to have been saved? What does it mean to be God's people set aside, set apart? What does that demand of us? So I invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, our ushers are here. They would love to get you one. You just lift your hand up. And uh, we want everyone to have a Bible open in their lap that you can see. This is, this is God's Word. Um, I don't want you to walk away from here thinking, this is what John thinks. I want you to walk away saying, I have seen what the Lord has to say in His Word this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or one that you can read easily, take this one. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. We love restocking our Bibles at the back. Um, that's a joyful thing for us. Um, just getting the setting here. Um, we are mid-Exodus. So the, the plagues have all come and gone. It's now the first morning following the death of every firstborn child in Exodus. You can imagine they're still sobbing and weeping coming from the houses of many Egyptians. Um, so last night's meal for the Israelites was the Passover meal. They killed this lamb together as a family. They smeared the blood on the doorposts. They gathered together to eat uh, the lamb in their house. Uh, and they ate it with their bags packed, and their sandals on their feet, and, and their walking staff in their hand, ready to go. And at some point in the night, they got word, it worked. It's happening. Pharaoh has finally broke, we're leaving Egypt, we're going. So they assemble in the city of Ramses, a city that they built in their slavery, and, and they gather there, not only them, but this mixed multitude, made up of probably slaves from around Egypt who were not Israelites, the poor and disenfranchised of Egypt saying, maybe I'll get a better life with this people if we just leave here. And no doubt, uh, a number of Egyptians who have genuinely converted to this Yahweh God that they have seen work so powerfully uh, in destroying the nation of Egypt. 
And together they walk all day um, to the city of Succoth. Um, not yet out of Egypt, but on the way out and ear, nearing this, the eastern edge. And here in Succoth, at the, the first stop, um, still in Egypt, but on the way out, the Lord instructs Moses and begins to teach them what it means to have been rescued. And the first thing he tells them is that they need to count the cost. Count the cost. Um, we're going we're to hit some hard stuff this morning. Um, we're going we're gonna to dig into this cost and what it means to really be a follower of Christ. And, and so as we do that, let me pray for us as we turn to God's word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true and trustworthy. Thank you that it gives us all that we need to know you, to know you rightly, to know your great salvation and to live in light of it. Lord, would you soften our hearts this morning? God, we just confess we are um, an obstinate people. We are an independent people. We love to have our own way and to be uh, our own man. But you have called us. You rescued us in this great salvation, just like you rescued Israel out of Egypt. Lord, I pray that you would mold us this morning. Help us to see your truth. Help us to be transformed by it, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Exodus 13, just verses 1 and 2 here. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Now, culturally, we have to understand something here. The firstborn is everything. Israelite culture, it wasn't about you as an individual setting out to make a name for yourself. It was all about the, the surviving and thriving of the family unit. And so as a father in the home, um, you were building this future family. You were, you're building your, your business, the family farm, your life to, to hand down to your firstborn son who would take it up and carry it on and, and provide for um, the, the people that have gathered there. The Lord is saying, set that aside. Consecrate it to me. Give it to me. They're mine. A.W. Pink puts it this way, fairly simply, a redeemed people become the property of the Redeemer. That's how redemption works. It means to purchase. He has bought them out of Egypt and now they belong to him. This was in view from the very beginning. Back in, in chapter 4, verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, before he'd even gone into Egypt, he told him, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me, that he may become my servant. Israel once belonged to Egypt, so their, their time, their money, their Efforts, their hopes and dreams, everything they had was owned by Pharaoh. They were his slaves. And the Lord is saying, I'm going to rescue them out from that slavery and they will belong to me. If I redeem you, if I purchase your life from Pharaoh, then your life is mine. You just can't sugarcoat this. There's no easy way around this one. Now, it means a much better thing to be a slave of the Lord than to be a slave of Pharaoh in Egypt. In fact, the contrast made is that between death and life. But it's no less an ownership. 
To be rescued by God, to be redeemed, is to be owned by God. So for Israel, coming out of Egypt, it meant setting aside, consecrating, giving up their firstborn as this kind of symbolic gesture. Lord, you have saved us and everything we have, everything that matters to us is yours, completely yielding to the Lord. It's like giving up the house keys, right? It's not just two little pieces of metal. Uh, It means something. It's everything. And that doesn't change with the coming of Christ. He has rescued us from our captivity to sin. He's called us out from that slavery. And we're His. It seems to me the modern church has worked so hard to try to sell Christianity to try to make it appealing to the general public, frankly, to try to make it appealing to people who don't like Jesus, that that we're guilty of deception on this. We tell people, God will be all about you. God will give you what you want. He will make you feel great. He will supply all your needs. He will become your cosmic butler. God will be your slave. Isn't that what you want? Doesn't that sound great? I've been clear on this in the past. I want to be clear on this again as always. God calls us to joy. He calls us to life and life abundant. It's only in God that we find satisfaction in the the deepest longings of our soul and He delights to do it, but, but that doesn't happen through God serving us as we think it might. It happens through us serving God and worshiping Him. That's where we find satisfaction. That's where we find delight and joy. He's created us that way. And that's what Jesus calls us to. He's saying to be redeemed, to be rescued out from sin and death means you belong to God. You are His slave now. Are you okay with that? Does that make you a little uncomfortable? seems to me there's a lot of people who would call themselves Christians. And I think all of us would feel this tension. But a lot who would say, I'm a Christian, but when push comes to shove, when the desires of my heart conflict with the commands of God, God loses every time. We, we want to be able to, to claim the freedom of the penalty of sin and say, I've been forgiven and rescued, but we're not willing to give ourselves as slaves to this God and say, now I'm His. And the Lord won't have it. Maybe we don't mind being part of the church, pitching in to help when there's need, maybe giving a little bit of money every now and then, but... But when it comes to the real decision-making in in life, when it it comes to things that I value, the way that I act, the things that I prioritize, um, the real sacrifice is I'm the boss. I'm the one who calls the shots here. So let's just get it out there. The familiar words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Not popular. Not a comfortable thought. If you aren't sure about that let, let's look at Jesus' words. I invite you to turn to Luke 14. Luke 14. We'll start at verse 25 and just see this from, from Jesus' own mouth. I'll give you a minute till I hear the, the pages stop rustling. Jesus says this now great crowds had accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, Picture this. 
Tons of people following. Great crowds are following. And Jesus says this to them. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to come after me, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and is not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great ways off, he will send a delegation to ask the terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I'm guessing the crowd following him shrunk that day. I'm guessing a lot of people said, he asks too much. It's too far, Jesus. Sorry, I'm out. Jesus seems to be okay with that. In fact, that seems to be his goal. Count the cost. Those are hard words. Count the cost before you decide to follow Jesus. Consider whether you're willing to go all the way through with it. Is he worth more to you than your mother and father? Is your dedication to him so far outshine your love for your mother and father that it looks like hatred in comparison? more than your husband or wife, your children. If building this tower is going to cost you every penny you have to your name, if fighting this war is going to expend every last troop that you have and exhaust your entire army, will you still do it? Is it still worth it? If you lose everything else and all you have is Jesus, is that enough? If you have to renounce everything to follow him, to be his disciple, will you follow? And if the answer is no, Jesus just quite frankly says, you you cannot be my disciple. It doesn't work that way. Being saved, being redeemed has a cost. And the cost is everything. That's hard. Are you willing to be owned, to give up your autonomy, your freedom to call the shots, to set the priorities? Are you willing to give it all for Christ, to counting the cost, to stare this straight in the face? Moses begins to unpack a little bit what that looks like for the people, to teach them what it means to be consecrated, set aside to the Lord, what it means to belong to Him. And the first thing he does is to remind the people of the festival of unleavened bread. He's saying, you belong to God, so so count the costs. And then first step in that is to cleanse out sin. We read verses 3 to 10 uh, back in Exodus 13, and I'll show you what I'm looking at. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. 
And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So verse 3, Moses reminds them the Lord has brought you out of slavery. He rescued you with a strong hand. The Lord brought you out. Pay attention to that. We'll see that phrase show up four times through these 16 verses. And and actually, if you're paying attention, it's going to show up as you continue to read through God's Word. It showed up in one of our songs this morning. It showed up in the psalm that Josh wrote. Um, This became the, the rally and cry of Egypt. This is who our God is. It's the God who has rescued us with a strong hand out of the land of Egypt. Because the Lord brought them out every year in the spring, they're to keep this feast of unleavened bread, this memorial, a testimony that with this strong hand, the Lord had rescued them from Egypt. So how do those connect? What what does it mean? Why does this rescue lead to eating unleavened bread? Well, we talked about this as we came through chapter 12. If you remember, leaven, yeast, It's often used by God as a symbol through Scripture of sin. They would get their bread to rise, uh, much the way we do sourdough today. Um, They would have this little lump of of leavened bread fermenting, and they would mix that into their dough, and it would permeate all the way through and cause the whole batch to rise. And before they baked it, they would grab out a little lump and set it aside for the next loaf. And so it would go from one to the next to the next. I don't know if they understood this, but I find it very interesting that what causes the bread to rise is actually death and and fermentation. And it's this powerful picture of sin. The corruption of of death and decay that that permeates all of life. And it's God saying, "I, I rescued you out of Egypt... Therefore, leave behind that leaven of Egypt. Don't don't carry that lump over into the new loaf. There's something new happening here. You're you're not part of Egypt anymore. Leave behind the, the influences, the habits, the practices of that old life. We're doing something new here. Clean it out. I'm taking you out of Egypt, so leave Egypt behind. Don't bring the leaven of Egypt with you. You're not slaves to Egypt anymore. You're slaves to the Lord now. This is going to look different. Verse 7, these three layers to it that I think are helpful. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. So get it out. They would cleanse the house for a week leading up to Passover, finding every crumb of bread and sweep it out and wrap it in in a handkerchief and carry it out and burn it. They would cleanse their house of leaven. Get it out of your presence. Don't eat it. Don't be around it. Then he goes on to say, then no leaven shall be in all your territory. They were to band together as the people of God, removing all the leaven from from all of Egypt. This is the age-old question. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. Yes, you are. 
We're to be encouraging each other, working together, cleansing out the old leaven from Egypt. And then it's significant, uh, the start of verse 7, they were to do it for seven days. One week, every year, year after year after year. And of course, seven is this number of completeness, of wholeness. Not, not just one day of the week, not half the week. They were to eat unleavened bread from the beginning of the week to the end. And the picture being they were, they were to abstain from sin. They were to root it out of their lives, not, not periodically, not seasonally, not just on Sundays, but for life, for every day. So that's the picture of this feast of unleavened bread and what it calls them to. Do we approach sin like that? Do we see our lives through that kind of lens? Do we search out sin to try to eradicate it? Do we, do we fight against it? Do we see it in our lives and make it our enemy, make it our mission in life? Not to be comfortable with sin, not to let it into the house. Don't snuggle up near it. Don't, don't let it permeate. Again, that picture of leaven, it, it, you, you can't keep it just off in a corner. You, it doesn't stay in the closet where you want it to stay. It, it, it pervades everything. It's what it means to live the redeemed life. Set aside, consecrated to the Lord, made holy to the Lord, is literally what that word consecrate means. Leave behind the leaven of that old life, root it out. Again, because you're not your own. You, you belong to the Lord now. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So honor God with your body. You were bought with a price. Do we, do we live that way? I was talking to someone just last week who made one of those just offhand comments. It just made me smile. Um, this is the kind of thing I just love to hear. Uh, you know, we were talking about the, the Christian life and the, and the battle against sin. And the comment was, you know, I just find it harder and harder to watch TV. That's cool. That's God at work. The more I come to know Christ, to love Him, to see this great rescue that He has done in my life, the harder and harder it gets up to, to put up with some of these things that, that I used to think was normal. I used to be really comfortable with. Now, I'm not saying all TV is evil. It's not. Some of it certainly is. But that ought to be happening in our lives. And of course, that's just a glimpse, right? That's just an exterior sign of what ought to be happening on the inside. Our, our biggest problem isn't sin outside of us, it's the sin inside of us. Dealing with the, the corruption and decay in our own hearts. When God rescued you from sin, He purchased you. You no longer have the right to do what you feel comfortable with. What you think is right, you gave up that right, now you're His. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I, and he's speaking of that, that old sinful me that used to run after those things, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I'm His. It's not about me living my life. It's not about my hopes and my dreams. It's about Him living through me. Listen how Paul explains it in, in Ephesians 4. It's another longer chunk, but I think it just describes this so beautifully. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, 
in the futility of their minds, in the darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's the old leaven. That's our old life. That was us. That was me. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul's saying, don't, don't live that way anymore. Don't walk that way anymore. That's not how you learned Christ. Assuming that you heard about Him and were taught in Him as is the truth in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is being corrupted through deceitful desires, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Is that how you were taught Christ? Is that how you came to know who Jesus is according to the truth? According to this truth that he tells us to, to put off the old self, to do away with that old life, to leave it behind, and to follow after God. Created new. Making war against those deceitful desires, that sin that used to rule over us. Putting on the new self, created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. When push comes to shove, when your deceitful desires long for something that is contrary to Christ, contrary to, to what God says in His Word, what will you do? Who wins that? Is it a coin toss? Do you run back into Egypt to do what the world says is, is normal and fine? Will you, will you serve your own best interests according to the world? Show yourself still to be a slave of that old master. Or do you remember, I've been rescued out from that. I used to think that way. I used to really believe that that was true and right and good. But in God's word, I see something different. And I trust God more than I trust my own heart. That's not easy. That's not easy. But you're not your own. It's no longer our right to do what we see fit. We belong to God. We've been consecrated to Him, set aside to Him. And, and here's the thing. Uh, Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Seems right. It looks good according to our human wisdom, but it leads to death. You may well think that God is wrong. You may well believe that you know better and that you will be happier and more satisfied if you run after those desires of your heart. And, and that's exactly the problem. Listen to Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. What a great hope. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. No wonder. No wonder we read God's word and we look at our life and go, I don't know. I kind of think this is better. I kind of feel like this would be more satisfying. And God's word says go that way. And we don't trust him because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. We need to be willing to disbelieve ourselves, to mistrust our own desires and say, no, God knows better. And I'm his. I'll follow him. Trusting his way is higher, his way is better. That's what we've been called to. So, so count the cost and then cleanse out sin. 
And then Moses returns to this idea of the firstborn. And the thrust here, he's telling them to commit all. Commit all. Read with me, uh, starting in verse 11, you can follow along. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites that he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or you will not, if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So the Lord institutes another symbolic reminder for them. The first was this Feast of Pentecost that, or of unleavened bread. Um, seven days every year they're to get rid of the leaven, reminding them to, to cleanse out the sin, the, that old leaven from Egypt. And then every time that, that one of their animals or they themselves have their first offspring, it's to be set apart to the Lord. And the language here is clear. It's a transfer of ownership. It, it becomes the Lord's. It's given over to Him reminding them to commit all to the Lord. He'll give more detail on how to carry this out in in, in Leviticus and Numbers if you want to get the details here. But verse 12, um, we see these kind of three categories breaking down. For for clean animals, animals that were acceptable as a sacrifice to God, they were to to make the sacrifice, take it to the Lord and, and sacrifice it to God. They're killed in in worship to God. The second category is unclean animals. Um, The donkey would probably have been the only unclean animal they would have kept and owned as Israelites. But an unclean animal can't be sacrificed to the Lord in the same way. It was not an acceptable sacrifice, and so um, they were to redeem it. They were to kill a lamb in its place, a a clean animal in the place of it, and then um, that firstborn donkey would go free. They were to buy it back from God. If, however, they decided it wasn't worth it, they, they weren't willing to redeem it, they, they would rather have the lamb than the donkey, um, then they would kill it by breaking its neck. And, and the breaking of the neck was uh, significant that that's not how you kill the sacrifice. It's just killed. The third category, of course, um, was their own children. Human life created in the image of God was sacred. It could not be sacrificed to the Lord in worship. That was forbidden. Uh, And you couldn't simply kill it like an animal, and so you had to redeem it. They had to offer an animal to die in the place of the firstborn child, just like they did on that first night of Passover. It was a stark reminder. Everything we have, our freedom, our offspring, our firstborn, our, our life and purpose belongs to God. It's His. So verse 14 when the children ask them, why do you do this? Dad, why did you kill the donkey? It was a perfectly good donkey, Dad. Why did you kill another sheep, Dad? This doesn't make any sense to me. Then they're to explain, because 
By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We were Pharaoh's slaves. He owned us. He controlled us. We were his. He refused to let us go, and and there was nothing we could do. We were powerless against him. The Lord came to our rescue. He called us out. He brought these plagues on Egypt and he absolutely obliterated our enemies. And so now I sacrifice to the Lord the firstborn of all of my animals and all of my firstborn sons I redeem. It's recognizing because God saved me, because of what he has already done, all that I have is his. Remember again, that firstborn is so significant. When you read firstborn, You think family, finances, your job or your business, your goals and dreams for life, your recreation, everything. This is the other side of the coin to cleansing out sin, right? We used to dedicate all that we had running after pleasure in this world sinfully and selfishly. We we, we pursued that with everything and we're to curb that, stop running after sin and start running after God. Use everything in pursuit of Him not holding back. It's all His. So let me ask you, what does your life look like? The priorities that you've set with your your time, your energy, your finances, um, who is it serving? Who's it all for? What does it mean? As you live as a husband or wife, what, what motivates you in that? As you raise your kids, what are you, what are you training them to be able to be and, and do? As you earn and invest and spend your money, what are you hoping that it's going to accomplish? As you live your life, what goal are you trying to fulfill? Is it just to get through? We just want to live a reasonably comfortable life, have some fun along the way, and, and, and retire early and hopefully die in our sleep. Is that, is that the height of it? Is there something more? Are we after some greater purpose? The Lord says, set it all apart to me. Pursue me. You're mine. 2001, John Piper preached a sermon that impacted my generation in a way that I think will only be counted in eternity. It was an exposition of Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which I was crucified to the world and the world to me. I was in first year Bible school wanting to serve the Lord, trying to figure out what does that look like, what does that mean. And this sermon hit me um, like a ton of bricks. It, it lit a fire in me, gave me something I could hold on to, give my life to. The one illustration, I, I'm sure you've heard it before, I hope you've heard it, but I want us to think about it again. I think it's so helpful. He asked this question, what is a tragic life? What does it mean to, to say this life or that life was a tragedy, and he, and he tells two contrasting stories. He said, three weeks ago, we got word at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were both killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80 years old, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed. The car went off the cliff and they were both killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? 
Two lives driven by one great vision spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all of their North American counterparts had retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read from you from the Reader's Digest, February 2000, what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took an early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago. He was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. The American dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only God-given life, and let your last great work before you give an account to your Creator be, I collected shells. See my shells, Lord? That's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Church, what are we here for? What's this life about? What will you say when you stand before the Lord? Maybe it'll be 70 years from now. Maybe it'll be tomorrow. What will you hold up? Well, you have something better than a handful of shells. We waste so much time thinking, how can I enjoy this life? How can I selfishly get as much as I can out of the the sin of this life and still call myself a Christian? How close can I get and still make it to heaven? This picture in my mind, and I don't know if it'll translate well to you, but it works for me. It's like we're on this island, and, and, and all around the edge of the island is a 100-foot cliff with rocks at the bottom. And we, we, we have this game that we play to see how fast we can run toward the cliff and how long we can wait before stopping and not quite fall off. That's a fun game, and we've gotten pretty good at it. But in the middle of the island is a mountain, steep, hard to climb, snow-covered. But at the top of that mountain, in the center of the island, the furthest point from any of those cliffs, is this palace filled with this never-ending buffet of the greatest food and drink and the best of company. It's the greatest joy imaginable there at the top of the mountain. And we pat ourselves on the back that we didn't fall off the cliff. Isn't that great? Why aren't we pursuing the palace? Why aren't we climbing the mountain? Stop asking, how how close can I get to the edge and not fall off? And start asking, how close can I get to the center? How can we get to that place that the Lord has called us to be with Him in in joy and reward? Because we're His. How do we pursue that joy and that life that, that He offers? We look at the mountain and we say, that looks hard. God says, yep, it's worth it. It's worth it. I don't know what that means for you. It's not my place to say. I know this. I used to have this complex growing up. Maybe you'll laugh at this. I hope you'll laugh at this. But I had this hierarchy in my head of what it really looked like to serve the Lord. If you really wanted to serve the Lord, you had to be a missionary. That was it. That was, that was the high point, right? I mean, down here you had kind of average Sunday morning Christians and a little bit higher than that were your elders and maybe the youth pastor. And and then the senior pastor, he's up another notch, but missionaries, they were it. Everyone else is clearly holding something back. That's what it meant to live 100% for the Lord. 
It's not the case. It's just not how it works. God has gifted you in certain ways. He's placed you in a particular place in this world, in this life. This is your calling. He's called you to be faithful to where you are 100% with the gifts that He's given you, with the resources He's given you, whatever that is. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're seeking the Lord and and you're wanting to to pursue Him and you're saying, you know what, I want to go be a martyr in Afghanistan or Somalia, praise the Lord and we are going to rally together as a church and make sure you get the training you need and the funding you need and we will send you off and stand behind you. That would be awesome. And I hope that, that we get to do that in years to come. But that's not everybody. Maybe serving the Lord for you right now, 100%, has much more to do with how you love your wife or your husband. How you raise your kids. How you talk at work. How you interact with your neighbors and the people around you. No matter where you go, those will be your first priority that God has called us to. So go, 100%. Live your life for the gospel in in Olds and Didsbury and Sundry. Sit down and ask, what's the goal of my life? Where am I going with all of this? What's the unifying theme of my life? If someone were to sit down and look at, at my calendar and my budget and my browser history and my daydreams, what would they see? What am I pursuing? Am I dedicated to loving my spouse as this radical display of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Am I raising up my kids as arrows to be shot out into this world for the glory of God? Am I working and making money and being frugal so that I can support the work of the Lord in olds and around the world, giving sacrificially? Does my life have that singular focus? When I stand before the Lord, my creator and my rescuer, Will he have good reason to say, well done, good and faithful servant? Might not be flashy. Might not be fame. It might not be a big deal as far as anyone else is concerned. But, but are you being faithful with what God has given you here and now? Spending time in his word. Spending time with him in prayer. Getting to know him more. Rooting out sin. Seeking after him. Now you... You've got to kill your pride to get there. You have to live as though you're not your own. Give your life. You belong to Him. You're His servant. So count that cost. If you're willing, pursue it. Cleanse out the sin and commit everything you have to God. But we must not forget, and we will not forget, the grounds, the motivation, the fuel for all of this. Why give my life? Why cleanse out the sin? Why commit everything? This is all very motivational up to this point, but you're going to walk out of here, and and if you don't have this why, then by Tuesday, it's old news. That's too much work. That's just too much effort. I'm I'm not down for that. Moses said it three times already. He says it again in verse 16. Here's the why. For, because... By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. They were to do it remembering year after year after year. Remember, if you, if you notice, who's he talking to in this passage? He's, he's not talking to those who lived through the Passover. He's telling them, once you get to the land, 
Once you're settled, he's looking years and years down the road. They were to do it remembering that God had rescued them so spectacularly out of their slavery and death. We share that experience. We share the reality of the Exodus. The Exodus is pointing forward to this greater salvation that Jesus has accomplished for us. So we do it all considering the cross. Motivated by, fueled by, made possible by the cross. Not not trying to get rescued, right? We get this backwards so fast. Oh, if I could give more of my life, I could root out more sin, then God would be happier with me, then God would save me, then I would earn God's favor. No, 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 no. This is post-rescue. This is after they had been brought out from Egypt. It's response. Because God has set us free from sin and death. Because he has bought us with his precious blood, because he has captured our hearts that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have been saved. Philippians 3.12, Paul says this very thing. Not that I've already obtained all this or have been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because of the security I have and the safety I have in Christ, then I pursue after these things. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, don't miss that, by the mercies of God, rooted in, flowing out from the mercy of God toward us in the gospel. He's, he's referring back to the first 11 chapters of Romans because we were dead in our sin and the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is salvation. And Jesus Christ, in view of all of this, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Because Jesus, because the firstborn of God the Father was already sacrificed in our place, because God has redeemed us, taken the death that we deserved. 1 Peter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ like a lamb without spot or blemish. Because by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out from the house of slavery. That's why. That's the driving, motivating force. That's what ought to overflow in us to this pursuit of of rooting out sin and committing everything we have to Christ. And, And it's not just the why, it's also the how. Think about this. When I count the cost, how do I find the conviction that it's worth it? What if I think it's not? When I want to sin, when when that's what comes naturally to me and that's what I desire, how do I say no to the desire of my own heart and see that, that transformation of my sinful heart? When I look at my life, and frankly, I'm okay with that. That's all I want is just to get by, just to get to the end. In some relative comfort, I'm satisfied with that. How do I move from being apathetic to being all consumed with things that matter into eternity? And the answer is you do it in view of God's mercy. 
You do it knowing that you were ransomed, looking again and again and again to the price paid for you, reminding yourself of the penalty for sin that that you deserve, that you were a slave to sin, that it owned you and it sought to destroy you, and that you deserve the wrath of God in hell. Reminding ourselves that, that He does not treat us as our sins deserve, but He paid this price on our behalf on the cross of Jesus Christ, the death of the perfect Son of God in your place, the wrath of God that we deserve poured out on Him. Reminding ourselves that price was paid for our life. We're not our own. We belong to the Savior. The one who loved you and gave himself for you to rescue you from death. Our life belongs to him. How do you cleanse out sin? How do you commit all? You do it considering the cross. Saturate your thinking with the glory of the gospel. Read God's word. And and don't just read it for historical tidbits. Be looking there for the gospel. Look for the the sinfulness of man and the grace of God. If you know how to find it, you'll find it on every page. Pick up books that help point you again and again back to the glory of the gospel that, that ignite your heart to see it again in its beauty. Pray it back to God. Be in fellowship with other believers on a regular basis. That's why we do small group. Sunday is a great shot in the arm, but we need to get together in, in real life situations where we can talk to one another and say, this sin has got me. I desire it. Help me. And have brothers come along and say, no, don't go there. Don't run toward the cliff. The palace is better. Come on, brother. Preach it to yourself. Do you do that? Write sermons for yourself and preach them regularly. No, John. Your heart is sinful above all else. It is deceptive. No one is tempted beyond what he can bear, but when he is tempted, God will make a way of escape. The gospel is better. God's ways are higher than my ways. Consider it again and again and again. Let it flow through you and in you. Fill your mind with it. By a strong hand, a glorious hand, the Lord has brought you out from Egypt in the house of slavery. He's worthy, and you're His. Let's pray together.